Father, we, uh, we come to you this morning like Jesus' disciples. We want to understand your kingdom. And we acknowledge, Lord, that we ourselves, like so many, are blind to the ways of your kingdom. So we come humbly before you, acknowledging that. And we ask you, God, to open our eyes, open our ears, to see your kingdom and how you have designed it all to work in the flow of all that you have created. And then Lord, help us to be ambassadors of that kingdom as we walk away from the ways of the world and seek to live in the ways of your kingdom on earth. May your kingdom come in us. May your will be done through us as it is in heaven. And we will continue to glorify you and seek you even as we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, uh, I'm gonna have you turn to Genesis, the second chapter. Uh, I am going to, however, begin in John chapter five. I just wanna read this. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there was in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in the Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, and he'd been an invalid that long, learned what his condition was, he went to the man and asked him, do you want to get well? I have, my grandparents were very influential in my life, especially my grandfathers. They're very different people. Uh, but interestingly enough, both my grandparents had lifelong nicknames. So my maternal grandparents were Claude and Gladys, but everyone called them Speck and Golly. So it was always Grandpa Speck and Grandma Golly. My paternal grandparents were Herman and Everdina. But their nicknames their whole lives were Hump and Toots. In fact, 
When they did, I think there were people that never knew their real names. It was always Hump and Toots. Hump and Toots. So, interesting, a parable of two grandfathers. I watched them growing up, and my, my grandpa Speck worked for Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, got a job during the Depression, and worked in their customer service department for 35, 40 years. And then he retired as people do at, you know, 65, and he got his uh, retirement party, and he got a set of golf clubs, and he kind of sat in his back porch, chewing his tobacco and smoking his pipe. He hung out, got a bicycle that he never rode. Sit, read the paper, listen to the ball game, rock in the glider. And about 10 years later, he began having all sorts of complications of health issues and he went into a very long and lengthy, uh, debilitating, painful existence in a nursing home for several years before he passed away. At a relatively young age these days. Grandpa Vanderwell, Grandpa Hump, he um, was a school teacher for 35, 40 years. And in fact, he started the uh, driver's education program in public schools back in the 1930s here in the state of Iowa. And he graduated, and they, at that point, there was a mandatory kind of retirement. And so he hit that point, and they said, Herman, you gotta, gotta quit teaching. And he's like, well, is there another job I can do? And they said, well, nobody, you know, we lost the person who ran the school lunch program. And he's like, I'll do it. So for a couple years, he ran the school lunch program. And then they came to him again and said, uh, Hump, you know, we've, you got to retire. Okay? Um, and then he went back a little bit later and said, isn't there anything I can do? And they said, well, we don't have anybody running the school bus program right now. So he said, I'll do it. So he ran the school bus program for a few years. And then they finally said to him, you're done. You've got to retire. And he said, okay. So he went up and he found himself a job as the bailiff of the Plymouth County Courthouse in Lamar's, Iowa. So at this point, you know, he's in his, he's in his 70s. And he worked as the bailiff of Plymouth County Court. I remember taking my spring break and going to hang out with Grandpa. And he, we'd go to the courthouse. I just loved it. I got to meet the judges and the lawyers. I got to watch cases. I got to listen to all the gossip back in the room. I got to walk, you know, between the, the lawyers and the judge, and I got, it was, it was fascinating. Well, Grandpa did that until he was 90, just over 90 years old. And the judge called him into chambers and said, Hump, I'm tired of waking you up to take the jury out. <laughs> You've got to retire. And about that time, it was also time for him to to go from independent living in his house that he just couldn't manage anymore. And so he moved into a retirement home and he got to the retirement home. And after getting acclimated, he went to the, the head of the retirement home and he says, so, you know, I just moved in here and I'm just getting the lay of the land. Is there, don't you have anybody that kind of, 
gives new residents a tour and explains everything to them and, and takes them around and shows them. And, and they go, no, we don't really do that. And he goes, I'm going to do that job. <laughs> and so he did. And whenever a new resident came, he would give them a tour and he'd welcome them and he'd show them all, tell them all the things that they needed to know as a new resident. And Grandpa Vanderwell would say to me, Tom, the day I stop working is the day I die. A parable of two grandfathers. Now remember, we're in this conversation about the kingdom economy, and as I said two weeks ago, I want us to not think about money as much as we think about flow. So everything, we talked two weeks ago, everything comes from Christ. He is the alpha point. Through him, everything was made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Everything flows through Christ. He said, when I am raised up and exalted, I will draw everything to myself. And so he is also the omega point at which all things flow back to him. So now I want us to be thinking about the fact that everything we are and everything we have and everything we may think we own is really not ours. Everything belongs to him. And we are just the conduit for the flow. Unless, of course, we're blind and decide that it's really ours, which you can choose to, to believe, right? So now let's dig in a little bit further in understanding this flow. Number one, Genesis chapter two, I want you to understand that the way God created things work. Purposeful labor is part of the flow. Chapter two, verse two. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. Go down to verse 15. And the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to care of it. So even in Garden of Eden, before sin, before the fall, there was purposeful work because God is a God who works. What did we just sing, Waymaker? Even when I don't see it, he's working. Even when I don't feel it, he's working. And he creates Adam and Eve, puts him in the garden, says, your work is to care for what I've created. So work is not a sinful thing, and work is not the punishment of the fall. Look at chapter 3, as God says, yep, you sinned, you ate of the fruit of the tree. He says to Adam in verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil, you will eat fruit from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. So the work was not the sinful punishment, the painful toil, the sweat toil, the hard toil of life is part of it. The work isn't the sinful thing. So here's what this means. Heaven is not retirement. Do you hear me? Heaven is not retirement. You mean we're going to work in heaven? Who is God? He's working all the time. Who are we made in the image of God? 
New heaven and new earth. Why is it any different from Eden? We will have purposeful, meaningful work of taking care of God's things in the kingdom of heaven. So I want you to understand this and bear with me because this goes against the grain. In the king's economy, there is no retirement. Well, let's sit there. There is no retirement. Okay? So, when God sets up the community guidelines, now let's fast forward from the garden, and God says, okay, I'm going to create my people, the Hebrew people, and I'm going to make them my nation, and I'm going to teach them my ways. See, God is a, a God of design and order, and everything that he does is an expression of himself. So it's really easy for us to forget the Old Testament like it doesn't even mean anything, but the reality is, is that God's creation and all that God does is a pattern of who God is. And so if we can see the patterns, we can begin to see the kingdom and its economic system. So let's go back to the beginning. He says, I'm gonna create this people and I'm gonna teach them my ways. They were slaves in Egypt. He frees them from slavery. He does that, it's his work. It's his miracles with Pharaoh. So God generously frees them from slavery. He then says, I'm gonna take you to a promised land. But first we're gonna go through the wilderness. And in the wilderness, they had nothing. They were traveling, living in tents. And so God provided generously for them in the form of manna, bread from heaven. So this is the way it worked. He said, every morning you're gonna wake up and the ground is gonna be covered with bread from heaven, this manna. You're to go out and you have to work to harvest the manna, but here's the thing. It's only good for a day to no one is to gather and harvest more than they need for themselves. Daily bread, generously given, but worked to harvest. Works part of what God wants. So now they get through the wilderness to the promised land. And all of these people who had been slaves and had received God's manna now have their own land and they have their own plot, their own farm in the promised land. So God gives them a commandment of what they're to do. And we're gonna to go to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 19. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for who? The foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Now the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow are all marginalized people in that economy. Because if you didn't have a father, you had nobody to provide for you. It was a patriarchal society, so if you were a woman, you could do nothing or own nothing on your own. So if you were a widow, you had nothing. And if you were a foreigner, you were considered, they were, it was an especially prejudicial and racist system. And so they would look down on foreigners. And these were the marginalized, okay? So he said, when you have your field, it's called gleaning. They're called gleaning laws. So I've got this field. Imagine this rectangular field. And what God said is, I want you 
when you go to harvest, I want you to leave room on the margins of your field. You are to gather the whole, everything but the margins, and then just leave that for the marginalized to come in and gather food for themselves. It was the way that God designed it so that everybody was provided for. So here's the flow of, of gleaning. Work to provide for yourself and the loved ones in your care. Two, you are to sacrificially give by gleaning. In other words, you do all the work, you, you uh, sow the whole field, you tend the whole field, but when it comes to harvest, you are to leave part of your profits in the field for those who need it. What did Brian tell us last week? Without distinction. You don't get to choose who can glean and who can't glean from your field. If they are in need, it is to be given. The foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, the needy. Third, gleaning laws made every family business the place where economic justice happened. It wasn't the duty of a government. It wasn't the duty of the church. It wasn't the duty of an institution. It was the duty of mine and yours and everybody who was a follower of God Almighty. We are to be the source of an economic justice. Every family, that's kingdom economics. Okay, now we're talking thousands of years ago. And let's think about Ruth real quick. If you read the book of Ruth, here's Ruth, real, Cliff Notes version. Ruth is a Moabite. The Moabites were enemies of the Israelites and the Hebrews. She was a Moabite whose husband died so now she and her mother-in-law are widows. They have nothing. They have no one. And so Ruth decides, I am going to, I could go home to my own people, but I am going to stay with my, father, or my husband's family. I'm going to care for my mother-in-law. So what did she do? She gleaned. She went to the field and she gleaned the harvest that was left in the margins. And she brought it back and she took care of Naomi. And what happened is the people of the community began to watch Ruth and said, wow, she is an amazing woman, this foreigner. Look at her work. Look at what she's taking care of Naomi. Isn't that woman sweet? What, a, what an amazing woman. And that comes to the attention of a man named Boaz who works the field. And Boaz comes to meet this woman that he's heard from the community. Wow, this amazing woman. And he ends up marrying her. So Ruth, in the humility, in her humility, chose to sacrificially work, sacrificially give, to care. And in God's economy, <laughs> what? Give, and it will be given unto you. And give, Humble yourself, and at the right time, God will exalt you, which is exactly what she did. And by the way, she's in Jesus' family tree. That's the example. So let's 
bring it now up to the time of the Jesus movement. Christ generously frees us from sin. Romans 6, 17 says, but thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to sins, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching. That's what we're doing today. We're a pattern of economics, a pattern of teaching that now has claimed your allegiance. And yet we're still living in the wilderness of this world. We're living in exile on earth, still under the dominion of the kingdoms of this world. But God provides for us just like he did the Hebrews. John chapter six, verses 47 through 51. Let me read it here. John chapter six. Jesus has fed the 5,000. He says, very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh given for you. This is the new manna. And in my kingdom, after I freed you from sin, all the days of your life on this world, I will sustain you with this bread, the bread of myself. And in this resurrected life, as we begin to experience the freedom of God and the holiness of God, then Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 beginning in verse six. Remember this. Think about flow. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. There's a flow. Miserly flow, miserly harvest. Each of you, oh, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. So remember this, you guys. This is a heart issue, not a pocketbook issue. This is a heart issue, not an institutional church tithing issue. For centuries, the church has treated generosity like an institutional program in which we say, 10%, and we monitor, and it feels like this, like, what? oh, but in the kingdom economy, everyone chooses from the heart. And the bigger your heart and the bigger your generosity, the greater the blessing. The more miserly the heart and the more miserly the generosity, the spiritual harvest is very, very little. So you should be, decide in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. If you are feeling compelled, it's the wrong motivation. Got some heart things to think about if you're feeling that it's compulsion or reluctance. For God loves a cheerful giver. It flows from God has given me everything. So let's just think about this. Everything that I am. The fact that I was born in Iowa the family that I was born into, 
the clothes on my back, the education I had, everything was generously given to me. I didn't decide to be born to my parents in Iowa. I didn't decide to be part of this educational system. I didn't decide to be born in America. I was blessed. I was generously given opportunities that have been given to me because of God's generosity. In God's flow, he somehow decided that this is what, what he wanted for me. And the moment I start going, well, it's all myself, it's all that I've done, whoosh, the heart's beginning to squeeze. But when I go, God, everything is from you. Everything that I have is from you. I wouldn't have anything if it wasn't for what you have given me in your generous flow. So now, what do we do with that? We're gonna just let it keep flowing right on through. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. They have, been, they have freely scattered, he then quotes from the Psalms, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor and their righteousness lives forever. By the way, that's from Psalm 112. Okay? Freely scatter your gifts to the poor. Now he who supplies the seed to the sower, that's what, God gives the seed. God allows me and he gives me bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way. Like Ruth. In every way, you will be enriched if you flow in generosity, recognizing everything comes from the alpha, everything goes back to the omega, and I'm just the conduit for the flow. Remember what Paul said. I know what it's like to have little. I know what it's like to have a lot. And Paul's example was this. I mentioned it a few weeks ago. He, his family made tents. And it was a big business. Roman Empire. All the Roman troops lived in tents. At least the, the soldiers did. So making tents was probably how his, he got to be a Roman citizen because his family made tents in Tarsus, which was one of the critical uh, places where the Roman Empire was a hub in that area. So it's believed by scholars that probably because his family made such good tents and did such great business with the Roman Empire that as a gift, the commander gave them as a family their Roman citizenship, which is a huge affluent luxury in that day. So Paul says, I got this job. I can make tents. So wherever he went, he brought his tools and he set up his tent business and he worked tents so that the church didn't have to use their margin for him. They could take the margin and use it for people who really needed it without distinction. He was practicing this economy I work to provide for my needs and so that I can then give and not take from the system or from others. And finally, a more modern example. In the 1830s, there was a pastor who recognized that most of his congregation 
who were poor farmers and laborers were enslaved to a, a class and economic system in which they had no opportunity to be anything but poor. Because in that system, you were born rich and stayed rich, or you were born poor and you stayed poor. And so he convinced this congregation, if you will come with me, if you will cross the sea to a promised land, God has abundant blessing for you. I believe it. So he and 900 poor Dutch farmers, most of them who had little and had given everything to cross the ocean, came to the wilderness of Iowa. There was nothing here. And in that wilderness, interestingly enough, Pastor Henry Peter Skolte, Domini Skolte, coming to Pella, the city of refuge that he designed in those first few years of this wilderness. That's all that was here, wilderness. The motto was, help yourself. What? Work. Help yourself. The opportunity is here. The, the land is here. Everything sits before you. Do the work. Humble yourself. Do the hard work. And in due time, you will be exalted. Brothers and sisters, we live in a community, in a promised land. We live in a community that has prospered and in God's flow is one of the most affluent, most financially solid areas in the entire United States. So the question is, are we building up more storehouses for the excess? Are we holding on to it? Are we claiming it as ours? Or will we contentedly make margin in our lives in order that we may give to the needs of the marginalized without distinction? So some questions. I'll ask the worship team to come on up. Here's the questions. Do I recognize and honor that all that I have, including my ability to work and provide for myself and others, are gifts that are generously flowing to me and have flown to me from God? Two. How much am I contentedly living within margin so that I can be generous with others? Or am I consuming so much that I have to borrow to get more and or build rent storage for all that I have? Third, have I assumed that the only reason people couldn't find work is because of their poor choices 
or their sin. For business owners, myself included, have I squeezed all the profit out of my proverbial field? Have I treated people who work for me as labor costs to be controlled rather than humans to be cared for? Have I failed to treat the people who work for me, either directly or by making my stuff that I depend on, have I treated those who work for me with dignity that belongs to them as image bearers of God? Jesus said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. May I respectfully submit to all of us that greed is a virus, a spiritual virus that manifests itself in a million different ways. And I hear Jesus asking me this morning, do you want to get well? We're gonna end with worship. I am glad to say communion is going to be served this morning for the first time in a year and a half, right here. So we're gonna have elders with a communion station as we worship. You're welcome to come up as you feel led in your heart and take communion. We also are, have prayer ministers who will be here uh, during the worship. If you need prayer, and who doesn't need prayer from time to time, they would love to pray over you and bless you, cover you with prayer if that is your need. Let's stand to worship God together.